Chapter 12 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 12. The Conquest of Scotland, 1297 to 1305. The last few years of Edward's reign were full enough of bitterness to the aged monarch. His disputes with the nobility were only ended by a humiliating renunciation of the dearest prerogatives of the crown. His attack on France led to nothing better than an unsatisfactory compromise. Even his triumph over the clerical opposition was only obtained as the result of infinite half-burnings and vexatious personal disputes. If the king's second marriage brought him some measure of domestic happiness, it was more than counterbalanced by the growing certainty that his son, Edward, was in every way unworthy to succeed so great a charge as the monarchy of Britain. But all the other troubles of Edward were insignificant as compared with the chronic and growing difficulty of keeping Scotland subdued. He made many sacrifices to get leisure and opportunity to put down the stubborn pride of his Scottish subjects, but one rising was scarcely put down than another burst out. Again and again, the thankless work of conquest had to be renewed, and at last the king went down to his grave with a full consciousness that success was farther off than ever. We have followed the course of Edward's policy in Scotland down to his first conquest of that land in 1296. That conquest had been accomplished with such consummate ease that Edward very reasonably inferred that it was final and thorough as his conquest of Wales had been twelve years before. But Scotland was not like Wales. It was not only that it was bigger, stronger and richer than the Western Principality, though these facts in themselves were a long way to explain the difference. In the very divergencies in race and type that Scotland presented, a further explanation of these differences was to be found. Both the Scottish nobles and the Scottish people were made of sterner stuff than the excitable, hot-headed and disorganised Welsh. It was easy by an appeal to their interest for Edward to obtain a temporary submission from the greedy and self-seeking Norman nobility of Scotland but the Scots nobles only acknowledged Edward as king so long as they believed that his distant rule would be a nominal rule. Under his guidance they expected to enjoy the turbulent independence of their brethren in Ireland and the Welsh marches. They had no love for King Edward, though they had a contempt for King John. As soon as they perceived that Edward intended that the conquest should be a real one, they began to manifest symptoms of opposition. They had not signed the ragman roll that English ministers should lord it over the land and ride roughshod over their most cherished liberties. Moreover, behind the politic opposition of the Scottish nobles, there lay the growing sense of indignation of the Scots people. The violent policy of Edward was gradually welding together the sturdy Anglican peasant of the Lothians, the Anglicised Gale of the Northeast, and the half-Anglicised Britain of the Southwest into a real and vigorous national unity. As the Norman conquerors of England had fused together Mercian, Northumbrian, and West Saxon by common servitude, so that a single English nation, strong, determined and united, rose out of the opposition to Angevin despotism, so now the oppressive policy of Edward in Scotland was slowly but surely creating the modern Scottish people. The very fact that the chief formative elements of the new nation were English only added to the severity of the struggle. The Scots, or the most vigorous part of them, shared nearly everything there would be conquerors, tongue, institutions, traditions and character. It was not, truly regarded, a war of two races. It was more properly a civil strife, a great schism of the English race within itself. The struggle was on that account the more stubbornly and persistently fought, and all the statecraft of the great Edward could not reconcile a proud and haughty people 
the extinction of its local life. The fears of the Scots nobles that Edward meant to make himself a real king might have first suggested his opposition to the conqueror. The opposition of the Scottish people to the tyranny of Edward's ministers soon made the struggle an irreconcilable one. As usual, Edward was very badly served. Just as 20 years before, all Edward's professions of allowing the Welsh and the poor Cantrads to continue in the enjoyment of their old laws were but a mockery in the face of the misdeeds wrought by Geoffrey de Langley in Edward's name. So now, the English king's protestations that he would rule Scotland justly after the ancient way were belied by the greedy vaingloriousness of a Cressingham and the grim, unreasoning severity of an Ormsby. Before long, a whole crowd of outlaws and fugitives had been driven by the severity of Edward's ministers to take refuge amongst the hills and moors. The misgovernment grew worse through the non-residence of Earl Warren, the king's lieutenant, who shirked the rigours of a northern winter and spring. The outlawed bands came down from their hiding places and wrecked a bloody vengeance on their English oppressors. The rural population welcomed them as deliverers. Before long, guerrilla forays were exchanged for open warfare. In 1297, a formidable revolt broke out, headed by William Wallace, whose name, Wallace simply means the Welshman, bespoke his affinity to the old Strathclyde Welsh, and whose gentle birth, gigantic form, iron courage and unbending resolution, and persistence in heroic opposition to the English, to whom it was believed he had sworn no oaths of fealty, made him an ideal leader of a revolted nation. The people flocked to his standard with enthusiasm. More slowly and with greater caution, many of the nobles and bishops forgot their oaths to Edward and abandoned themselves with the national hero. In September, Wallace put to flight the English army at Stirling Bridge and slew Hugh Cressingham, the worst of the oppressors. Next month, the victorious partisan dashed over the borders and harried Cumberland and Westmoreland. Earl Warren, recalled to his post by the rebellion, was powerless to withstand the mighty rush of the popular wave. Scotland was freed from end to end. The rule of the English Earl had been succeeded by the government of William Wallace and Andrew Murray, the generals of the army of the Kingdom of Scotland, and the wardens of the absent King John. While the Scots' insurrection was running its course, Edward was still occupied in Flanders, whither he had taken a large army of Englishmen and Welshmen, but he made no way against the French, and was involved in all sorts of difficulties with his allies. Philip the Fair burst into Flanders, captured Lille, and occupied Bruges. The conquest of Bruges cut off Edward, who was at Ghent, from the sea. A vigorous attack was therefore ordered to be made upon the French positions. The French were almost defeated, when the two wings of the ill-assorted Allied army destroyed by their mutual animosities the hope of victory. The Flemings fought so fiercely with the English and Welsh about the booty that the day was lost. Boniface VIII now offered his mediation. Both Edward and Philip were averse to recognising any right of the Pope to interfere in his official capacity in the disputes of sovereign and independent princes. But both wished to end the struggle, and agreed, while rejecting the proposals of the Pope, to accept the friendly offers of the man, Benedict of Gaeta, who then filled the papal throne. A two years' truce was patched up, which finally ripened into a definite peace. After the truce was signed, there arose a violent dispute between Edward's turbulent soldiers, largely Welsh and Irish, and the townsmen of Ghent. It culminated in a two days' pitched battle in the streets, during which Edward was exposed to considerable personal risk. Extricated from his trouble by the strenuous efforts of Count Guy, Edward had now leisure to return to Britain, where his presence was sorely needed. In March 1298, he landed in his kingdom and at once busied himself with the preparations for an expedition to suppress the revolt of Wallace. He held a hasty parliament at York, 
but the Scots lords, to whom summonses had been sent as well as the English peers, unanimously disregarded his commands. The feudal levies were then summoned to meet at Roxburgh, a strong Scottish fortress that still remained in English hands. Edward piously prepared himself for his work of conquest by a pilgrimage to his favourite shrine, Sir John of Beverley. On Midsummer Day, the English host mustered at Roxburgh. There was a splendid array of heavily armoured knights and men-at-arms, all mounted on horseback. Edward, who was in many ways an old-fashioned soldier, regarded the feudal cavalry as the real strength of an army, and on this occasion he had so little concern of the infantry that he only forced the attendance of those who were bound to serve on horseback. Nevertheless, a large number of volunteers served on foot, nearly all of them being Welsh and Irish, but the gallant show was far from unanimous or wholehearted. The earls of Norfolk and Hereford refused to fight unless the king again confirmed the charters. But the Bishop of Durham and the earls of Lincoln and Warren pledged their word that if the king came back victorious, he would do what the two earls required. The English host now advanced into Scotland. Wallace had retired beyond the Forth, and no opposition was offered to Edward's advance to Edinburgh, whither the army went on slowly, plundering and devastating the country on the line of route. Having taken possession of the capital, Edward marched westwards as far as Kirkliston, a village on the border of the Mid and West Lothian, where he made a long halt. It was dangerous to advance further until Dilton Castle, between Edinburgh and Dunbar, which was strongly held by the Scots, had been captured. And when the warlike Bishop of Durham at last succeeded in this task, there were such great difficulties in provisioning the army that Edward was still forced to remain stationary at Kirkliston. A contrary wind prevented the provision ships from sailing up the fourth, and the only vessel that arrived had a large cargo of wine, which, by Edward's orders, was distributed amongst the soldiers. The regular Welsh infantry had suffered most from lack of victuals and were dying off in large numbers, but Edward now sent such a bountiful supply of wine to revive the spirits that they all got drunk. A quarrel broke out between the Welsh and the English men-at-arms. The Welsh slew 18 Englishmen, but the English retaliated, killing a large number of Welshmen and putting the rest to flight. The Welsh now talked of joining the Scots. Edward professed to set little store on their action either way. What does it matter, he said, if enemies join with enemies? Welsh and Scots are alike our enemies. Let them go where they like, for with God's blessing we shall one day obtain our revenge over both nations. But the lack of victuals continued, and on the 21st of July, Edward gave orders to retreat to Edinburgh. At that moment, a boy brought the news that Wallace, having marched within six leagues on the English, was encamped at Falkirk and proposed to follow the English up to their retreat to Edinburgh and to surprise their camp on the following night. As the Lord lives, cried Edward, there will be no need for them to follow me on this very day. I will march forward and meet them face to face. He had once ordered the English army to advance to Linlithgow, where it encamped in the presence of the enemy on the open heath. That night was an anxious one in the English camp. The prospect of battle had again reconciled the Welsh and the English, and every man slept as best he might with his shield as his only pillow and his armour as his bedclothes, while the horses kept ready for action by his master's sides had nothing to taste but the hard steel of their bits. In the midst of the night a wild cry arose in the English ranks. Everyone believed the enemy was at hand, but all that had happened was that the horse of the king, tethered like that of the meanest trooper to his rider's side, had trodden upon the sleeping Edward and broken two of his ribs. But when day dawned the king mounted his horse as if nothing had happened, and marshalled his troops for the great battle that was at hand. It was the 22nd of July, the feast of St Mary Magdalene, at early dawn, the English marched through the streets of Linlithgow, 
and saw the Scots lancers glistening on the crest of a neighbouring hill. But when the English advanced, the enemy retreated to a remoter and stronger situation. A halt was therefore ordered, and mass was said before the king and bishop. The English then advanced against the army of Wallace, now drawn up to meet their attack. The generals of this period placed all their trust in the heavy, armed feudal cavalry. But with half the Scots nobles still waiting upon events, there was but a scanty muster of horsemen among the insurgent host, and Wallace was forced to rely on the footfolk that constituted the mass of his army. The great danger to infantry was lest they should be swept away and overwhelmed in the fierce rush of a heavy armed cavalry charge. To prevent this, Wallace hit upon a novel plan, the conception of which shows him to have had the makings of a great general in him and strikingly anticipates Wellington's tactics at Waterloo. He drew his pikemen up in four great squares or circles in close formation with palisades to further protect their ranks. A morass protected their front, archers filled up the gaps between the squares, and a scanty corps of mounted knights formed a rear guard. It was a strange order of battle, and nothing like it had been seen in Britain since the cavalry of William the Norman had scattered the footfolk of Harold on the hill of Hastings. An English poet describes vigorously enough in the strange scene. Their spears point over point, so sere and so thick, and fast together joint, to see it was ver-like. As a castle they strode that were walled with stone. Thy wend no man of blood, though them should have gone. As Wallace contemplated the novel array, he exclaimed triumphantly, I have brought you the ring of hope, give ye can. But though the Scottish partisans had conceived the possibility of resisting cavalry by closely trained infantry planted in a compact mass, he was not destined to see the triumph of a system which, within a generation, was to revolutionise the art of warfare. The Scots at Falkirk did not succeed as the Flemings at Contrai, the Swiss at Montgarden, and the very Scots themselves at Bannockburn succeeded in withstanding the fierce rush of the line of mail-clad warriors on their mail-clad steeds. The main reason for this was to be found in the generalship of Edward, who, while adhering in the main to the old-fashioned tactics of a cavalry charge, had skill enough to modify them in such a way as to meet the new danger involved in Walsh's formation. In three great battles or divisions, Edward poured his host out onto the Scots army. The first line struck in the morass, and fell into some confusion, but the second line wheeled about and vigorously assailed the enemy in flank. The scanty Scots horse galloped away in panic. Their numbers were much too few to make resistance possible. But their withdrawal compelled the Scots archers also to seek safety in flight. This left the four squares to bear the whole brunt of Edward's attack. For some time, the serried masses of pikemen held their own gallantly behind their own palisades, Edward saw that there was no prospect of breaking through their ranks by the mere momentum of a cavalry charge, and he therefore poured in showers of arrows upon the squares, and before long the deadly hail began to have its effect. Yaps were soon made in their ranks, through which the English knights galloped in. With the breaking up of the ranks, the Scots army was turned into a mob of fugitives. The light-armed Welsh and Irish footmen reaped the spoils of the victory. While heavy losses was inflicted on the Scots, only two knights and a few of the common folk fell on the English side. Wallace fled, and soon withdrew from the country. His short, strange career of a generalship ended as suddenly as it began. This is the more wonderful as Edward reaped no very great results for his brilliant victory at Falkirk. He consumed a fortnight inactively at Stirling while his broken ribs grew together again. Lack of victuals prevented an advance beyond Perth, and compelled the abandonment of all thoughts of a conquest of the Highlands. 
Edward on his recovery resolved on the conquest of the southwest, where Robert Bruce, the young son of the cautious Earl of Carrick and the grandson of the competitor, held the chief power and strove to secure his own independence with little care for either side. But provisions were still harder to find upon the barren moors of Galloway than in the fair cornfields and pastures of the Lothians. September saw Edward back at Carlisle. Despite his great victory, the conquest of Scotland had hardly begun. Operations for the year were perforce suspended, and when the selfish policy of Norfolk and Hereford insisted upon an immediate return to their homes. For nearly six years, Edward strove to complete that conquest of Scotland, which he had begun by his victory at Falkirk. Year after year, he entered Scotland, and little by little, the stubborn Scots bent their backs to the English yoke. The courts of justice and the apparatus of government were transferred from London to York, and it seemed as if the old Roman city was again about to become the permanent capital of United Britain. But all sorts of difficulties stood in Edward's way. He still had to deal with the persistent agitation of his subjects for the renewal of the confirmation of the charters. He still had to conclude his intricate negotiations with the French king. He did not establish any real understanding with his subjects until 1301. His French troubles were not oh, finally over until 1303. The peace with France involved both delays and difficulties. The truth was turned into a formal peace, which was signed at the famous Cistern Abbey at Le Mans in the Sartre's country in the summer of 1299. In accordance with its provisions, Edward was married to Philip's sister, Margaret, and his son, Edward, promised to Isabella, Philip's daughter. In return for this, Edward tacitly abandoned his Flemish allies to the vengeance of the French king, though the Flemings declared that in doing so he broke an oath which he had sworn to Count Guy. But Edward was seldom over-scrupulous, and his real object was to get from Philip a similar abandonment of the Scots. Against this, his brother-in-law long held out, and on various pretexts still kept Gascony in his hands, but in 1302 the stubbing Flemings utterly defeated the chivalry of France in the famous Battle of Courtrai, where the tactics with which Wallace had failed to win the day at Falkirk were repeated with overwhelming effect against the best cavalry of Christendom. Philip now saw that he had plenty of work cut out for him at home, especially as his old strife with Boniface VIII had been recently renewed in a more inveterate and deadly form, and Boniface, changing his policy, strove to induce Edward to renew his attack on Philip. But Edward was of no mind to serve the Pope's turn, the more so as Philip, induced by necessity, now gave way about the Scots. In 1303, a definite peace was signed between France and England. Gascony was restored, and an offensive and defensive alliance entered upon by the two kings. For the rest of his reign, Edward remained at peace with the nations of the continent. His persistency had in the long run overcome the duplicity of his neighbour. The struggle for the mastery of Britain could now be fought out on British soil, unhindered by foreign intervention. The constitutional struggle was much harder to settle. The confirmation of the charters in 1297 proved not the end, but the beginning of a new and acrimonious controversy between the king and his subjects. The two earls were not satisfied with Edward's first ratification of his son's acts, and their hesitation to discharge obligation against the Scots, unless Edward again confirmed the charters was, as we have seen, a source of weakness to the king all through the Falkirk campaign. Next year, 1299, the demand for the further confirmation both of the Great Charter and of the Forest Charter was again raised. But like a true descendant of the Norman kings, Edward regarded the forest as the special property of the crown and resented all restriction on these forest rights as an insult both to his person and to his dignity. He was forced indeed to give way, for the blessings of the people were changed into curses 
when it was found that he had confirmed the Forest Charter with the proviso, saving the rights of the Crown. A long agitation now broke out, during which neither side showed much temper or forbearance. Edward's evident reluctance to yield up title of any of his prerogatives and his strong tendency to interpret any concession he made in the narrowest and most technical spirit added to the exasperation of his subjects, while the old king grew beside himself with fury when he found his barons and parliaments perfectly indifferent to the progress of his Scottish conquest and persistently refusing all help except on the terms of his complete submission. Very reluctantly and unwillingly, Edward yielded to the inevitable in the Parliament of 1300, and by the issue of the Articuli Supercartus, evaded a formal confirmation by accepting in another way the main conditions imposed upon him by his subjects. But even then, he had no peace. In 1301, a new Parliament assembled at Lincoln, where a clever combination against the King was carried through by the dexterous diplomacy of Archbishop Winchelsea. The estates demanded the removal of the treasurer, Walter Langdon, Bishop of Litchfield, and the chief minister of Edward's later years. Again, Edward was forced to an almost unconditional submission, through which he saved his minister. After all, the Scots' war lay nearest to his heart, and he at length saw that as long as the king and people were divided, the Scots could never be subdued. Edward had made great concessions both to France and to his parliaments, in order to isolate the Scots from all moral and material support. But a third obstacle now interposed itself between him and his revolted subjects, in a peremptory order from Boniface VIII that Edward should desist from the Scots' war. Scotland, said the Pope, was a fief of the Holy See. To wage war against the Scots was to rob the papacy of its choicest prerogative of protecting its obedient subjects. The claim was first put before Edward while on a Scots campaign. Winchelsea was, as usual, on the Pope's side. He now sought out the King and Galloway with a papal envoy in his train. Edward's hot temper fired up as the Archbishop exhorted him in biblical phrase to desist from further hostilities. By God's blood, he cried, I will not hold out my peace for Zion, nor keep my silence for Jerusalem, but I will maintain my right, which all the world knows, with all my might. In the Lincoln Parliament, Winchelsea was again active in pressing the Pope's claims. But the barons, though they joined with the Archbishop in his demand for the confirmation of the charters, stood manfully by the King in resisting this new and unheard-of papal pretension. A spirited remonstrance was drawn up in the name of the barons, which declared in good round terms that the Pope's interference was meddlesome and intolerable. The result was that the relations between England and Rome again became strained. As a further result, Boniface's attitude left Edward in no mood to listen to the entreaties of the Pope to take up his side in the great struggle that now broke out between France and the papacy. Edward was too pious and too busy at home to join actively at Philip's violent and brutal onslaughts on the unhappy Pope. But the fall and death of Boniface in 1303 and the thorough subjugation of the papacy to France which followed taught Edward to estimate at their true value the thunders of Rome. He was at last free from papal as well as baronial and foreign opposition. During the weary years of threefold strife, Edward still turned his whole available energies to the reconquest of Scotland, though he had made little progress. In 1299, the barons had refused to follow him as his promises to keep the charters were still unratified. After his submission in 1300, Edward was able to take the field with a gallant army that marched from Carlisle to the conquest of the southwest. The most famous incident in this campaign was the capture of Carl the Rock, a stronghold held by only 60 men against Edward's great host and commemorated in a French poem, dear to genealogists and heralds. In 1301, Edward was again in Scotland, 
and after conquering the greater part of the land south of the Forth, he took up his winter quarters in the old palace of the Scots kings at Linlithgow. Early in 1302, Edward held a round table at Falkirk to celebrate the progress of his conquest. But though the Scotch yielded before the advance of his troops, they were still far from being subdued. In 1302, the Scots surprised and defeated the king's troops in the Battle of Roslyn. This was their last great success. In 1303, the real conquest of Scotland began. Edward was at last free to devote all his energy to the task, and long years of warfare had worn out the energies of the long-suffering Scots. Edward's work now seemed quite a simple one. Edward next made a great progress throughout Scotland, which recalls the famous march in 1296. He marched through Perth, Breaking and Aberdeen to Banff. As far north as Caithness, the weight of his arm was felt, and the Highland chieftains flocked to his camp to make their submission. At last, John Comyn, who had governed Scotland since Falkirk as regent for King John, despaired of further resistance and made peace with Edward. The only strong place that now held out was Stirling. Edward took up his winter quarters at Dunfermline, where, so peaceful as the country was now, he was joined by his young queen. With the spring of 1304, the attack on Stirling began. It was a siege conducted with all the military skill known at the time. Huge wooden machines cast stones weighing two or three hundred weight into the castle. Battering rams were brought to the warfare against the walls. Movable turrets were wheeled up against the battlements, and the fosses were filled with stones and earth. At last, on the 20th of July, the scanty garrison surrendered. There was no longer any organised resistance to Edward's authority in Scotland. But Wallace, the hero of the First Revolt, who had almost disappeared from history after his defeat at Falkirk, now again came on the scene. His old fame was half forgotten, and the long struggle had disheartened the Scots too much for them to venture upon a fresh rising. The hero lurked in the woods and hills with a scanty following, while Edward, secure of his triumph, returned to England, and, as a sign that the war was over, ordered the return of the courts of justice and officers of state from York to Westminster. Nor was the king's confidence ill-grounded. In the summer of 1305, Wallace was captured through the treachery of the Scots and brought to London for trial. Condemned as traitor, murderer and incendiary, Wallace suffered in due course the terrible penalties of the English law of treason. His death has been made a matter of reproach to Edward, on the grounds that, unlike most of his countrymen, he had never become the king's vassal. But the evidence of this fact is not very good. Moreover, the laws of war were stern in the 14th century, and no technical claim of right was likely to protect the very soul of the long resistance of Scotland. Edward acted as anyone else would have acted in his place, in holding out against Edward. Wallace knew full well that he carried his life in his hands. It adds rather than lessens the glory of the Scottish hero, that in due course he paid the penalty of his heroism and self-devotion. But the special glory of Wallace belongs to a later age, when the songs of the Scottish bards made him the popular hero of the War of Independence. Edward now drew up a scheme for the government of Scotland. An English Parliament met in September 1305 to settle the question. In this assembly, Edward, true to his doctrines of popular control, caused ten representatives of the Scottish estates to appear. These included two bishops, two earls, two abbots, two barons, and two representatives of the commons, one for the north and one for the south. A committee of 20 English lords was associated with the Scots members to draw up a scheme. From their joint deliberations sprang the Ordinance for the Government of Scotland, the last and perhaps the most striking of Edward's many claims to statesmanship. Admitting that Scotland was to be ruled by Edward at all, it is hard to see how the Government of Scotland 
could have been better arranged than by this plan. John of Brittany, Edward's faithful nephew, was made warden or lieutenant of the whole land, with the ordinary officers of state under him. For the purposes of justice, Scotland, like Wales, was divided into large districts. Eight judges were chosen, two for the Lothians and other English lands south of the Forth, two for the Welsh or British lands of Galloway and Strathclyde, two for the English-speaking lands between the Forth and the Grampians, and two for the Celtic Highlands. Sheriffs, coroners and the other officers of the English shire system were appointed to hold office during the King's pleasure. They were to be either Englishmen or Scotsmen. The rude Celtic laws, the laws of the Bretts or Welsh in Strathclyde, and the laws of the Scots or the Highlanders were, like the Welsh laws of Howell Dada, repugnant to Edward's notions of justice. They were, where they were therefore to be swept away and replaced by the English and Norman laws, which since the glory days of King David had prevailed in the Scottish lowlands. John of Brittany was instructed to assemble the good folk of the land of Scotland in some fixed place and ascertain from them what King David's laws really were and what additions had been subsequently made to them. He also directed to redress and amend such of the Scots' laws as were plainly against God and reason, taking the advice of both English and Scottish councillors in arriving at this result and referring all decisions of great importance to the immediate judgment of the King of England. Thus, by Edward's scheme, a separate administration was provided for for Scotland. Though the Scots were secured with some measure of representation in the English Parliament, for the most part the Scots administration was put into Scots' hands, and the prospect of a great legislative reform in the immediate future was an additional inducement for the Scots to accept the new constitution and its programme of practical reforms and strong, sound rule, as a substitute for their old, turbulent independence. But it was too late for conciliation. Nearly 20 years of warfare and hatred had worked out their fateful results. Nothing but sheer force kept Scotland obedient to a foreign conqueror. Half Scotland waited for the opportunity for rebellion. That opportunity was not long in coming. End of chapter 12